Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. We spent a bit of time on Terranauts talking about the early days of the International Space Station, but most of that conversation has been from the perspective of NASA. But one of the really unique things about the ISS is that it really is international, and as I witnessed firsthand, that took some getting used to for all of the participants. Today, we're going to talk to a guest who saw that process from a pretty unique perspective. Michael Lyon did not start out his professional career looking for ways to make it easier for people to get to space, but in the end, that's what he did, and that's what he does. As such, he is not only a true Terranaut in his own right, but something of an expert in creating new Terranauts. It's a fascinating story, but I think it's one that I'll let him tell himself. Michael Lyon, welcome to Terranauts. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, so so just to get the, the basics out of the way, um, you're an American. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Evanston outside Chicago where Northwestern University is. And when I was in public school there, we got invited to Northwestern to be in a program with their astronomy uh, program. We got to use their large observatory. And I got very interested in, in uh, astronomy and also during those years in the 1960s, interested in the space program. It was almost every month that something fascinating sure. was happening. And of course, in 1969, when I was 10 years old, we landed on the moon, which was a high point in my life. Um, yeah. I always yeah, thought a long time ago I'd be walking on the moon, but you know, we, they had predictions when you were 40, you'd be walking on the moon. You actually watched the moon landing? I did. My parents gave me permission to stay up uh, late to watch it. It was, it was definitely fantastic. So, uh, but, but that's not really the direction your early career took. Yeah, like most people who want to be astronauts, I went to law school and uh, sure. and of course and 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 studied history as well. And I ended up going to a large law firm in Washington. Then I worked in the government as a special assistant to the head of the FDIC, uh, Bill Seaman, who's an amazing guy, during the savings and loan crisis, which was from 1988 to 1991 or so. And during those days, we handled three of the four biggest bank failures in the history of the country, about 700 failed wow. savings and loans. So it was the biggest financial crisis the country faced since the Great Depression. It was a fantastic yeah. job. Yeah, well, that's that's quite a, a thing to do early in your career. And and when uh, what did you do after that? And sort of when when is that 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 all of that wrapped up for you? Well, after I left the government, I worked in uh, for a large debt restructuring company, and um, finally, I, I did another followed another one of my passions, which is sailing, and bought a boat and went sailing the Caribbean for a year. And when I came back, I was looking for what I was going to do, and I went back to my passion in space. I was out in Las Vegas at the Comdex show, uh, predecessor to CES. And I met uh, a team from a company called Space Adventures, which was selling MIG flights out there. And yeah. started talking to them and ended up joining the company as the number two person in the company as the head of uh, corporate development and general counsel right. of Space Adventures. Right. So, so the whole concept of space adventures may not be uh, something that, that many people are familiar with. What, what does it mean? What did space adventures mean then? What does it mean now? 
Well, at, at that time when I joined Space Adventures, we were doing other space activities like uh, you could go up in a MiG, you could go uh, uh, a zero gravity in a Lucia 76 in Moscow, um, you could go on a centrifuge, different space training uh, pre-space sort of activities. But really our goal was to, <laughs> to create a, a orbital space tourism flights. And right. after, uh, after Dennis Tito was not able to go to Mir, he came to us and we organized his flight on the Soyuz to the International Space Station in 2001. Wow. Yeah. So, so people, you know, we talk about space tourism. It's not like it's an everyday thing, but it's certainly something, something we talk about nowadays. But in those days, it, it was a pretty novel concept. Well, it still is. I actually, you know, Space Ventures is still the only company in the world that's done space tours. And we, you know, we have a lot of other people talking about it and I'm sure it's going to happen soon, but you know, the, the flights that Space Ventures did and has, and continues to do are the, are the only space tourism flights that took place. And they were novel. I mean, the Tennis Tito's flight was on the front page of the newspapers. It was really a oh, big yeah. story. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, very exciting. And, um, uh, operation to, to get done and uh, very complex. A lot of discussions with NASA, discussions with the Russians, a lot of sure. drinking by Dennis Tito to, to have a great relationship <laughs> with the Russians. <laughs> was a, it was a key secret ingredient to everything. Yeah, um, I'm sure. How did we get to the point of, of, uh, of thinking about sending non-professional astronauts um, to the International Space Station? You know, I think I think several factors came together to make it possible. One was after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian Space Agency was not very well funded, and they had an obligation to send a Soyuz up to the space station every six months as the right. emergency escape vehicle. And we came to them with an attractive proposition. We said, you know, we will pay the cost of, of you doing that. And it was about $20 million at that time was what they really? we were told for that flight. And as you know, the Soyuz is a three-person vehicle. It really probably only needs two people to fly it. So there was this extra yes. seat. So we purchased this extra seat and helped fund the fund that obligation. And at the same time, you had people like Dennis Tito who had dreamed about going to space, had the financial resources to make it happen, had the time to make it happen, okay. and, uh, and, and was really a, a force uh, to make it happen. So those two things came together, plus with, with our – our background kind of in the middle between the two, um, that was a special combination. Yeah. So, so really it was a question of the Russians having made a commitment, you know, in the early nineties, uh, by the late nineties, we're, we're finding it difficult to, uh, to meet that commitment, but, but realizing that, that a lot of people were counting on it, they, they wanted to find a way to do it. So, so they were comfortable with it, but, but I'm pretty sure it's not something that the folks at NASA who originally envisioned the international space station had in mind, um, that must've led to some interesting conversations. Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, NASA's a big organization. I think a lot of people at NASA really supported what we did because they know that it's important to get the public behind space. The same reason we have the space museums, really. Um, sure. Because if you don't have the public behind space, you don't have funding. And it's just, and one of the most important reasons we go to space is to inspire inspire kids, inspire people to be interested in technology and science and those all those things. So, you know, get new ways of getting to space, making it exciting again, because it had, had become a little... I wouldn't say dull, but it had lost some of its luster by that time, you know, right. and, and uh, so a lot of people liked it, a lot of people. And then there were some people at NASA, frankly, like the administrator who didn't like it. They saw it 
I, frankly, I think is a threat against mm. the, the uh, maybe they saw it as a threat against the professionalism at NASA. Like right. if you didn't right. spend eight years being a fighter pilot and then being, or a PhD right. in science, and then training for a dozen years to become an astronaut, sure. it, you couldn't really be an astronaut. So mm. uh, it kind of cut against that idea, I think for some people. So there, there was definitely a battle, but I think most, most of the people, um, at the top of NASA, really, were not very supportive at that time, but they've come around, mm. and now uh, obviously they, they're very supportive of this kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's it's uh, you know it's very much a, the whole point of this show is that space is about regular people involved in exceptional activities, not exceptional people involved in exceptional activities. So I, uh, you know, I really do view the that the early days of space tourism as a big part of the the Terranaut story, as I call it, but. Um, there must have been some interesting stories about preparing Dennis for that flight, uh, especially the interaction between NASA and the Russians and Dennis and the Russians. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of diplomacy going on there. Yeah, there was. There was. And I mean, there was a time when Dennis came to Houston to go and do training with his two fellow cosmonauts and NASA didn't let him through the gates. And the cosmonauts wow. stood with that with uh, Dennis and said, you know, we're not going in unless Dennis is going in. And eventually right. that was resolved. Um, and I would say, you know, one of the one of the I guess one of the stories that I like is is the day of the flight. Um, yeah. We 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 chartered a jet from Moscow to fly to Baikonur in Kazakhstan. It was a little more than three hour flight on a small right. jet that had huge couches and everything in the front with Dennis's family. And then these like seats in the back that you could hardly sit in. I was kind of like czars really? and serfs on the, on this. Wow. So wow. It, it, we flew out there and, and Baikonur is really, is really one of the most remote places I've been. It's, it's not a small town, but it's a very old kind of Soviet town, very, uh, you know, not a lot of color. The only green I saw was on the grass at the Sputnik Hotel. It looked it looked like a place <laughs> you'd want to have like a a James Bond movie, you know, yeah, some yeah, sort yeah. of a the, chase scene. The, the the way to find Baikonur is to go to nowhere and then find the middle of it. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where. Uh, yeah, it, it really is in the steppe, right? I mean, it's it's there is nothing around Baikonur it, for it's a long nothing. way. And then if you walk around the city, there's not much there. It's just a, a not not much but anyway the day of the launch we went to the briefing and then we we were in a, a bus behind the bus that contained dennis that drove out to the launch pad so we were right, right there and when the dennis and the cosmonauts came out to relieve themselves against the bus which is a tradition going back to Yuri gagarin yes we were there and then we followed him up to the launch site and and we walked right with him up to the gantry and it was really? right there right there where the, the 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 steam was crystallizing on our faces and as he went up in the elevator it was it, it's something i never got to do again that that was the first one they they really let right. us have this incredible access wow and then, and then you know going to the to launch area which was not very far away much closer than even the vip launch but i've been to i've been to the control center in in uh in uh Florida for an Atlas V launch, for example, and that's yes. about as close as you can get. And, and being in at the launch in Kazakhstan is is much closer, <laughs> for better or worse. Really? I mean, you're, I think, less than a mile away. Wow! So it's, it's a very intense experience, and it was a very yeah, a kind of full body experience watching. Yeah, a launch very personal. When you know the person launching, it feels yes. a little different than when you're just seeing somebody yes. else go up. Yes, for sure. Wow. So, so what, what, what is a, a Soyuz launch? Like, like a lot of us have seen Atlas or Delta or even space shuttle launches from Florida, but, but what's it like to, when a Soyuz launches? 
Well, I think when you see a launch in person, and this applies to all launches, is that one of the things that impressed me is the is the brightness of the flame. I mean, you can mm. see pictures or videos, and it's just not the same as being there. And the yes. noise, uh, it just it yeah. is intense. And you're just much closer. Even when the shuttle launched, I mean, they try and dampen the noise because they didn't want all the tiles to fall off. But yeah, and, that's right, that's right. And and, uh, and and this these launches, it's very loud, very bright, and you're very close to it. And um, only really VIPs are out there. I mean, you, there's no big public groups out there because you can't get there. Flying out on a jet somehow and, uh, or driving for a few weeks, you know, so it's, it's a wow. different kind of experience. Yeah. So, so looking back on the whole space adventures experience, which really was pioneering, you know, a, a brand new way of, of doing things. What do you think, you know, what did, what did you learn from having to, to really get, get people to see things in a new way? And, and more to the point, you know, what do you think that the, the world learned? I mean, it, it was a time when the Russia and the United States were not exactly used to figuring out how to work together, but, but I view, you know, part of that, I view the International Space Station, but even this part of it as being a big part of kind of learning, uh, learning some things about, about the value of, of crossing borders. It, you know, was that your experience as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say, unfortunately, I think we might have gotten along better with the Russians in those days than we do today. You know, that was yeah. really pre-Putin's pre, uh, uh, changed the way that the Russian government worked, you know, and they they really needed us in those days. That transition from the collapse of the Soviet Union um, to where we are today, that was a period when the, the Russians really needed Americans, and that created, a, I think, a stronger relationship in some ways than we have today, unfortunately. But right. it was a good right. example of us working together. And I think the other thing is it was an example of the private sector, kind of the new space sector working with NASA and doing something mm-hmm. that was good for NASA and good for the country. And I yes. actually think that our flights with Space Ventures, the next year we did Mark Shuttleworth's flight was the first person from Africa to go to space, that those flights were part of the beginning of the new commercial space sector. I mean, even right. even, even um, Elon Musk came to our office one day in those days really? and was talking to us about his kind of crazy idea of building a, a rocket company. I mean, a lot of people were right. inspired by that, by what we did. And I think, you know, you're, you're seeing today where you have so many different space companies out there and you have NASA actively working with the space companies. I, I was at a presentation recently where NASA gave a presentation about how they want to work with private companies. And it sounded a lot like the presentation that Space Adventures gave to NASA back right. in 2001, trying to get them to do our work together, you know, and and was totally uh, dismissed at that time. So that's been a really a, amazing change. Yeah, no, I I think that that some of that, you know, along with other things, but that those early days of Space Adventures really taught uh, the traditional um, space community that that uh, you know times they were a changing because uh, of NASA's attitude, I think, at that point. So around the time that I I was doing work with NASA and hearing a lot of the conversations from the other side, frankly, but but they're very different than the conversations you hear today. And I think partly it was because of the success of those flights. So, so after uh, Space Adventures, um, you actually got a chance uh, to get involved in, in your own kind of mission, although it wasn't a, a space mission. You, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I, my, a guy named Mike McDowell, who's really one of the great adventurers in the world and great uh, entrepreneurs, um, who was chairman of Space Ventures, was also chairman of a company called Deep Ocean Expeditions. Okay. So I started working with him as well. And the Deep Ocean Expeditions worked with the Russian Academy of Sciences with their Deep Ocean Submersible Program called the Mirs. So if you've seen the movie Titanic, you've yes. seen the Mirs. 
Okay. There are two submersibles that can go down about 20,000 feet. And deep ocean expeditions will take the mirrors to the Titanic or to the Bismarck or the hydrothermal vents and do space, do tourism trips and also um, do uh, media productions. And, and it, was, it was similar to space tourism in that it was a case where the Russians had these great assets, but not a lot of cash to operate yes. them. So we helped fund the Russian expeditions with the mirrors. And I, okay. I was very fortunate that I, I spent three weeks on the, the, the Keldish support ship uh, off the coast of Mexico, about 500 miles off the coast of Mexico, and went down 2,500 meters in a mirror to the hydrothermal vents where you have this really? extreme life. Uh, at the bottom of the ocean that you might find on some distant planet, you know, life without sunlight. Yeah. So what's it like in one of those submersibles? Well, it's cold and damp and close quarters. There were three people in it yeah. and I was in it for 12 hours sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Wow. You know, the, in some ways I think of a, of, of a submersible as the opposite of a spacecraft. I mean, a spacecraft is, it's really dangerous getting to space. And then in space is reasonably benign, and then coming down to Earth is also really, you know, yes. difficult. In in the ocean, you know, sinking and coming up should not be very hard. You know, it's not a very complicated, not dangerous thing. But when you're down deep, where we had 250 uh, atmospheres of pressure on the windows, yeah, you have a little pinprick, you're you're in really big trouble. So, right, it's in some ways it's the opposite, but it, it really was one of the most incredible things I ever got to do. I'm wow. very happy I what did. What sorts of things did you see? Well, we saw the at that that area is where three um, plates came together and were separating, and you had these underwater volcanoes that were very hot, and uh, would actually melt could melt part of the vehicle if we got too close to them, even in the deep wow. ocean. But after about two or three hundred feet, it was pitch black. So when we got down to the bottom, we turned on our lights, and the first thing we saw was this beautiful white. Uh, octopus that we like a Dumbo octopus and we spent really? a couple hours with it and then we went around looking at the different volcanoes and a lot of the there's a lot of life down there most of them don't have any color they're just white except for these red tube worms which are kind of blood blood red hmm. um, and uh, so it, it's very interesting and and so was that like a multinational team that was running that expedition it was it was Russian uh, all Russian, Russian, Russian commander, Russian ships, Russian crew, but the passengers—they were most well, mostly American. But we had some people from Australia. We had some Germans. Um, so we had some. There were probably about, I'd say, about twenty-five people there um, that we brought, and, and they were from a, a, a variety of different places. Right. So, so again, an interesting example of, of, you know, everybody's, everybody's got a common objective and you may come from different backgrounds and need from different languages, but, but the thing that unites you is, is wanting to get the, the big job done. So yeah, it has we, that in common too. Yeah. We had, we had Owen Garriott, who is the space shuttle uh, astronaut, uh, not the space shuttle, the, uh, the uh, space lab and uh, the father of, of Richard Garriott, who's also gone to space. They're, I think they're the only father and son. He was with us. So that was great spending weeks with him talking about his experience in space. Wow. Wow. That's pretty neat. So what have you been up to since those days? Well, I, I, I work with companies in the new space sector as a lawyer in business development. I am an associate in a space accelerator called the Creative Destruction Lab Space Stream, which is right. based out of the Rotman School of Management in Toronto. And I've co-founded a company called Extronaut, 
with Dr. Dante Loretta, who's the principal investigator for the NASA OSIRIS-REx asteroid sample return mission. And at oh, Extronaut, yeah. which is a little bit similar names to your company, uh, we develop uh, space-related board games. Our idea is to, to inspire the next generation. We work a lot with the Boys and Girls Clubs, and, and we're working now with the Planetary Society, and we do education programs. And we are also – uh, we have a Kickstarter coming up at the end of February for our our, our fourth game um, called Extronaut 2.0. Yeah. And uh, finally, our, our, the last six months or so, we've, we've developed our initiative called Extronaut Beyond, where we're combining uh, Dante's big space mission experience. He's got 15 years of putting together the OSIRIS-REx mission. It's an incredibly long time to get one of those missions done. There aren't, there aren't many that get much bigger than that. No, and in and, and my kind of new commercial space sector, we're putting those together to look at creating lower cost uh, solar system missions that you can do for 15 to $35 million and, and open up these kind of missions to many parts of the world that really can't afford a billion dollars for a mission. Right, right. Well, you know, that is very much, uh, you know, as you say, Extronauts, uh, it, it has a lot in common with our, our theme here at Terranauts, which, uh, like I like I said, it's about it's about average people doing extraordinary things and about getting to space without ever leaving the ground. Um, and and I think that it's it's been really fascinating to hear uh, hear the story of how you've uh, participated in that. And, and I think it's great that you're you're spending your time trying to create more Terranaut experiences for more people. It's, it's certainly something that I think is very worthwhile. I'm really glad that you had a chance to talk to us about it today, Michael, and thanks for being on Terranauts. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.